0: We're getting the fourth chapter of Luke this morning, and just for awareness' sake, uh, if you're someone that follows the sermon cards that we put out, those cards that tell what, what t- passage will be preached on what Sunday, uh, we're now out of order. There was a guy that was supposed to come preach for us last week; his flight was delayed, uh, so thankfully another brother stepped up and, and, and preached. And so this Sunday, we're preaching from I'm preaching from Luke four verses one through thirteen. And the next two Sundays will kind of be a combination of the, the, the rest of chapter four. Uh, so if you're someone that, that cares and follows alongs and, and, and reads um, the, the passages before Sunday mornings, just wanted to make you aware of that. This week is one through 13, and then the next two weeks we'll finish out chapter four. And if you're a guest with us and you don't have a Bible, we invite you to use one of the ones from the pew pockets in front of you. Uh, if you turn to page 585 in those Bibles, you'll find the passage for this morning. And if you don't have a Bible in general, I invite you to take one of those and consider it a gift from Pioneer Church. So we would love for you to have a copy of the Lord's Word. But Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Go ahead and invite y'all to stand as we prepare for the passage to be read. Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Actually, I'm going to, I usually read and then pray. This morning, I want to pray first and then read the passage. You'll see why in a second. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning thanking you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is and for how it helps us day in and day out as we seek to live this life for your glory. I pray and ask that you would use it in our lives toward that end this morning. As we read about our Savior and how he demonstrated his power to save and overcoming temptation come on, we find our strength and our joy and, and a great sense of encouragement in knowing that we have that kind of savior one who is perfect and without sin and is able to atone for our own sins I pray that we would see him as that worship him with all of our lives and seek to imitate him in all of our lives And Lord, I pray for myself as I prepare to proclaim your word this morning. Would you give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, concision of speech? Father, I'm excited to worship you through proclaiming your word and inviting your people to worship alongside me as we sit at this table and feast from your word. And so I pray and ask that you, Holy Spirit, would help us to do what only you can. Help us to see your word for what it is. Help us to glean from it. Help us to understand its truth and help us to leave change by it. God, I pray that and ask that if there's someone in the room who doesn't know you, that the proclamation of your word this morning will present you in such a way that they have no choice but to repent of their sin and respond with a life of faith and worship unto you. That's what we desire this morning, God, to either grow in the faith that you've already given us or to be introduced to a new faith through the truth of your gospel. And so would you use this morning toward that end? Would you help me as I stand as a human seeking to proclaim the truth of your word on behalf of you, who is a perfect divine God. I need your help so desperately father. And so I pray that you would give it It's in Christ's name. I pray for the glory of the father that I pray. And it's on the Holy spirit that I depend now as I preach. Amen. Amen. Don't sit yet. Uh, I want to take a quick poll. You know how some people come to you with, both good news and bad news, and they say the infamous question, like, okay, what do you want first? You want the good news first or the bad news first? If you're someone who likes to get the good news first and then the bad news second, go ahead and take your seat. Only Elizabeth. (laughs) That doesn't surprise me, actually. Um, For the rest of us who are are normal, Elizabeth is going to be upset with me this morning because I'm about to preach. You know, I, just, I wanted to do this poll. Y'all can go ahead and be seated, all of us. We can join Elizabeth in, in seating and, and pray for her to be enlightened to what's normal. <laughs> um, but I wanted to do that quick poll uh, just because I want to give this disclaimer. The sermon kind of shaped up in a way this morning that I'm about to preach some bad news up front. There's going to be a good bit of bad news that I'm going to unpack, but I want you to hang with me because at the end there is good news. And I think that in seeing the bad news first, it'll make the good news all the more sweeter once we get there. Amen? Amen. Amen. So bad news first. The first bit of bad news I have this morning is that temptation is real. Temptation is real. Let me read the passage for us, and then we'll see how temptation is real. Luke 4, starting at verse 1. says, Then Jesus left the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He had nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord, your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. This is the word of the Lord. And this passage shows us again that temptation is real. And I don't think this is something that I've got to try to convince y'all of. Like We all know that temptation is real. From the very days that we're able to discern what's good and bad, moral, immoral. From those very days, we're also able to discern that temptation is real and that we have the temptation to pursue that which is bad. Amen? There are both things in this world around us and compulsions from within us that make us desire and be urged toward that which we know to be bad or wrong or immoral or less than ideal for us. Yet we're still tempted to give into those things. Some of you may have seen the, uh, the marshmallow experiment that was done with children a few years ago, and I actually had this video to kind of go viral. Uh, if you've not seen the video, I suggest you go look it up after service. It's a hilarious video. But in the video... These children are placed into a room one at a time and they sit at a table and there's a single marshmallow on a plate sitting in front of them on the table. And the facilitator of the experiment, she tells them, she says, OK, uh, I'm going to leave for a moment. But here's the rule. We're going to play a game and here's the rule. She says, if you wait until I get back before you eat this marshmallow, then I'll double it. and You can have two marshmallows. So the payoff is pretty clear, right? It's compounding interest that they're learning, even at a young age. Like if you sit and you wait on, this, on, on the facilitator to get back, then you get two marshmallows instead of one. Two marshmallows is better than one marshmallow. And so she leaves, and the moment she leaves, there's a camera that's hitting in the room, and you can see these children start to battle with temptation. They want to eat this marshmallow before she comes back. Some of the kids even start doing weird stuff, like they, they flick it, or they touch it, and then they lick their finger. A few of them picked it up and they were like, just put it on their face and just put it in their nostrils. They're just idolizing this marshmallow, being tempted to eat the, the, the marshmallow before she returns. If you watch the video, you see them wrestle with temptation. And we experience something regular, something similar on a regular basis, don't we? We know what it's like to be tempted. We live in this fallen world where each and every day, we all face temptation to sin and to dishonor God. Temptation is real, friends. We all are aware that temptation is real. Every human who has ever lived knows this to be true. Even Jesus, like we see in the passage, even Jesus, who was both human and divine, man and God, he experienced the reality of temptation. It's exactly what we're seeing in this passage. It tells us outright in the first couple of verses. It says, Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And look at what, what Luke writes at the end of verse two, right before he shows us how Jesus was tempted. He says, Jesus was hungry. And I'm considering all that Luke just wrote right before this. It makes sense, right? Jesus was hungry. And when I was growing up, if there was too big of a gap between lunch and dinner. I'd make the mistake of, of, of saying around my mom that I was starving. I say, man, I'm, I'm, I'm so ready for dinner. I can't wait. How long do we have to dinner? Because I am starving. I'm going to quickly correct me. And she let me know like, no, 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 You don't even know what it means to be starving. She said, you might want to eat, but you don't know what it means to starve. Well, this passage shows us at the beginning that Jesus goes 40 days without eating. So I think Jesus probably would have been legit in saying that he was starving, right? I think it's also worth pointing out here that Matthew's gospel uses different language. When he records this, Matthew writes that Jesus fasted for 40 days, Now, this may mean that uh, he didn't go without food, or or it may mean that he didn't go without food in in the literal sense, but that he just kind of refrained from what would be normal food intake for 40 days. Uh, But if that's the case, then Luke is probably using some kind of emphatic, hyperbolic language to show the extent of Jesus' hunger. I'm not sure which of those is true. Like, did Jesus go a literal 40 days without eating, or did he go 40 days just refraining from what would be normal food intake? I'm not sure, but what I do know is that at the end of verse 2, Luke tells us, Jesus was hungry. Now think about that. Like it's almost insulting that Luke writes this. We could have assumed from everything he said up to this point that Jesus was hungry. Like he just wrote that he didn't eat for 40 days. So of course he's hungry. But I think the reason Luke writes this, friends, is because he wants to remind us that Jesus is human. Jesus got hungry because he was a human. He wants to remind us of Jesus' humanity because he knows that we can read a passage like this and we can wrongly assume that because Jesus is God, that his temptation, it was actually less of a temptation than those that we see. So we can read this passage and wrongly assume that because Jesus is God in human flesh, his temptation wasn't really temptation. One of the points from the sermon a couple of weeks ago was that Jesus identifies with us. And we need to remember that here as well. Like, it's easy to see how Jesus identifies with us in in physical suffering because we know that he was beaten and crucified. Or it's easy to see how he identifies with us in heartache because there's a verse that explicitly says Jesus wept. But we should look at this verse that tells us he was hungry when the devil came and tempted him to create bread. And we should take this verse to mean that he identifies with us in temptation as well. He's fully God, but he's also fully man which means he knew what it meant to be hungry, and here the devil comes and he tries to tempt him and have him to sin by that hunger. So Luke writes that Jesus is hungry because he's showing us that Jesus is human, and therefore he knew human temptation. Now, is his temptation different than ours? Yes. We're tempted from without and from within. Meaning we both have our own, uh, we have our sinful flesh and and sinful desires that tempt us from within, and there's a sinful world that comes against us and tries to tempt us from without. Well, Jesus is different because he has no sinful flesh, so all of his temptation comes from without, but nonetheless, we see from this passage, Jesus was tempted. And so unlike us, all of Jesus' temptation was external, but he was tempted, friends. He lived as a human on earth. And so just like every other human who's lived on earth, he experienced that temptation is real. He knows this to be true. And all of us know it to be true as well. Temptation is real. And if I can add more bad news on top of this, not only is temptation real, but during your life on earth, temptation can also feel inescapable. And the verses that we read from Leviticus this morning... We see where God tells his people not to follow the practices of Egypt, where they had just come from, nor to follow the practices of Canaan, where they were going. So whether they looked forward or backwards, it didn't matter. They were going to be tempted. Temptation was everywhere. The temptation to sin followed them where they went. And then you can notice in this passage that we're told that Jesus is out in the wilderness. So he's isolated himself. He wants to go and fast and to prepare for his ministry. Yet the devil follows him and he finds him with temptation. The reason I bring this to our attention is because I think there's a common misunderstanding amongst Christians that if we just get far enough away from the world, that temptation to sin will cease. Now, don't hear me wrong. Like, it is good and godly to put up boundaries and to to put things in place that lessens the amount of temptation in your life. Please continue to put boundaries in place. But don't put boundaries in place assuming and hoping that your boundaries will eventually make you immune to sinful temptation. Because there's only one place that's far enough from temptation for us to go and be free from it. And that, that only God decides when we get to that place, friends. That place is called heaven, and it's a space that God creates for us. So I'm sorry to keep doing this, but there's more bad news, Christian. There's no such thing as you creating a place on earth that gives you full rescue from sinful temptation. So yes, hate sin, but don't form unrealistic expectations of being freed from temptation to sin in this life. And yes, fight sin, but don't lie to yourself and and think that you've beat it completely in this life. And please, put safeguards in place, but don't create a box around yourself and think that sin and temptation to sin only exist in the lives of those outside of your box. The Word tells us that we all have sinful flesh and we'll all be tempted until the day Christ returns. Temptation is real. Temptation is in our faces. And unfortunately, in this life, friends, temptation is guaranteed. I'd even go as far as saying that if you have the temptation to say that you don't face temptation, that in itself is probably a sinful temptation. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 he cries out in a kind of agonizing way, and he's, he's frustrated that he can't live up to the holy standards that he wants to, and he's wondering when he'll be freed from his temptation in his sinful flesh, because even he, the apostle Paul, who was a man that was fully committed to holiness, he knew what it was like to live a life of temptation, and then in 1 John 1.10, we're told that anyone who says that they're without sin makes Christ a liar, and his word is not in them. Why does it say this? Well, because God's Word shows us that we're all tempted, and apart from Christ, we're also all sinful. And I know it's bad news, but it's true news. This is where the gospel starts, with our sin, us facing the reality of us being sinful people who are continuously tempted toward sin. Temptation's real, and as long as we live on earth, it's also guaranteed. Those first couple of verses right there, they show us that even Christ... The one who never gave in to sin. He was still tempted by Satan and the world. And therefore, he can empathize with us in knowing that temptation is indeed real. And Christ can also empathize with us in knowing that temptation is personal. So, he, this is more bad news. Temptation is personal. We've already been made aware that Jesus is out in the wilderness and he's fasting, so, he's hungry. He was about to begin his public ministry of proclaiming and and demonstrating to the world that he was a savior who had finally come to to rescue them from sin and all effects of it. And so he takes this period of time to go and fast and, and to prepare for his ministry. And then the devil shows up. And he knows that Jesus is fasting. He knows that Jesus is about to begin establishing his kingdom by saving people into it. He knows that Jesus had been prophesied about as the promised Messiah who was sent by God, the father. He knows all of this. And what I want us to note is that every temptation the devil throws at Jesus, he throws in a way that shows that he's taking what he knows about Jesus into consideration as he tempts him. First, we see it plainly. Jesus is fasting. So he's hungry. We've already said that. And Satan tempts him by saying, Hey, forget your fasting. Forget your preparation for ministry. Why don't you turn that stone into some bread so you can eat? And then we see it in the next temptation in verse 5. Satan knows that Jesus has lived 30 years growing in his understanding of the purpose for which God has sent him. So Satan knows that Jesus now knows that he's a messianic king. God sent him to save a people and establish a kingdom and to, to establish a kingdom of those he saved and then rule over that kingdom as the king of sinners saved by grace. So in his very nature, Jesus is kingly. His purpose is to rule as the king of kings. And at this point in his ministry, he's he's preparing to to begin making that known. So he he has his own understanding of that. He knows that he is kingly in nature. So what does Satan do? Verse 5, Satan takes him up. Kind of a supernatural vision is probably what that was like, suggested by language. But he takes Jesus up. And what does he show him? All the kingdoms of the world. So that's Satan getting personal again. And he's saying, hey, I heard, I heard through the prophet Isaiah that the kingdom God promised you is one that you'll have to suffer for. But if you worship me, I'll give you all that you see right here in this very moment with no suffering involved. Because if you worship me, you can have this kingdom that you see right now. No suffering. So exchange the kingdom God has promised for you. And take my kingdom instead. I actually want to pause here to look at what Satan says about this temptation. I want us to look closely at this. If you look at verse 6, you'll see where Satan tells Jesus that he can give him the splendor or glory and authority within the kingdoms of the world that he was showing him. And he says that he can do this because, his words, all that authority has been given over to me And I can give it to anyone I want. This probably makes many of us uncomfortable. The fact that Satan says he has authority in the world in which we live. That should make us uncomfortable. And it should make us even more uncomfortable that what Satan says here is actually true. So yeah, here's more bad news. When Satan says that he has authority in this world, he's actually telling the truth. The world in which we currently live is fallen and is rampant with sin. And God's word in places like John 16, 11, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Ephesians 2, 2. And those verses of God's word, we see Satan referred to as the ruler of this world, the God of this age, the ruler of the power of the air. Y'all ever seen those passages and wondered how is Satan referred to as a ruler? It's in God's word and we see that. And it should be extremely discomforting. But here's what you got to know about those verses. They say that Satan rules this world, this age, this temporary time. And in the grand scheme of eternity, friends, the lives we live here on earth, they're this big. So this temporary time of rule and reign that Satan has, while we may look around and and see that sin is among us and, and it seems like Satan's works temporarily prevail in this life, we got to remember that his works are limited in time, just like this world is. God may be allowing Satan to have what appears like triumph in this life, but he's already told us other places in his word that it doesn't go further than this life. There's an eternal life, and it awaits us. And in that life, we'll all get to see who's actually in rule and power. Or as Tim Keller likes to put it, God only gives Satan enough rope to hang himself with. He might rule right now. But that rule is coming to an end. And the reason we need to keep this in mind is because whenever we're tempted to sin, remembering that Satan or sin, the, the, the promises that they try to give us, remembering that they're short-term promises, that'll help us to see that the better promises from God are the only source of long-term fulfillment and satisfaction we can actually have. This life is this big. Satan's rule is this big. God's promises and the next life go on to the, forever. There is no end of time. They go on and on and on, and they can grant us long-term satisfaction. But to get back to the bad news, because I'm not done with that yet. What the devil says with this second temptation is true. There's a small amount of authority that he has for a temporary time. And he tries to use this authority in this passage to tempt the Lord Jesus. It was as personal as the first temptation And this third temptation is personal as well. Look at verse 9 and note the third temptation that Luke writes about. The text says that the devil takes Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem and he has him stand on the pinnacle of it. Then he tells him to throw himself down so that God would send angels to save him. Now, the interesting thing to note about this is that Satan takes scripture out of context in an attempt to make Jesus question God's faithfulness to him. The Bible verse Satan mentions is Psalm 9112, and that verse is actually about Jesus ruling over the evil in the world. But the evil one here, he comes and tries to twist it to make it about Jesus testing God. And this isn't the first time we see this in scripture, is it? This is how sin entered the world. Satan approached Eve and he tempted her to eat the forbidden fruit by causing her to question what God had said. This is the way that Satan works amidst temptation, friends. If this passage shows us anything about him, it shows us that he comes and he comes with, with, with cunningness and, 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 and cleverness, and he even has a little bit of power. And he observes our lives and seeks to use his power to know in-depth, personal things about us. Then he tries to twist reality and, and alter what we understand and know to be good to tempt us to sin. When he tempts Jesus to turn the stone into bread, he was trying to make Jesus question his own power. He's saying, hey, if you're God in human flesh, take this thing that you supposedly created and turn it into food. He wanted him to ask the question, can you do for yourself something that will be better than what God the Father has in mind for you? When he comes with the temptation of the worldly kingdoms, he was trying to make Jesus question who had actually has authority to give him the kingdom that he was supposed to have. He wanted him to ask, can I offer something better than what God the Father has promised to you? Then when he comes here and tempts Jesus to question God's faithfulness, he's saying, does God actually know what you need and will he actually meet those needs if you throw yourself down from here? Every temptation he throws at Jesus was him somehow twisting truth, questioning what was good and all in a way that was personal based upon what he knew about Jesus. And this is the same way that you'll be tempted as well, church. So we can add that to the the, the pile of bad news this morning. There's Satan, there's a sinful world, there's your own sinful flesh, and all of those things come together to cause you to question what's good by offering temptation that is real and temptation that is personal. So how do you respond when this happens? What is it that you're supposed to do? You should respond in the exact same way Jesus does. Know that every time Jesus responds to Satan, his response begins with the words, It is written or it is said. That's because Jesus was quoting what he knew would be a source of strength amidst his temptation. His quoting was written in God's word. Every word that Jesus utters to Satan is a quote that came right out of the book of Deuteronomy, which ironically is an Old Testament book that was basically preached as a sermon to God's people as they were in the wilderness facing their own temptations. So Jesus is out in the wilderness... He's being tempted by the devil, and what he has running through his mind are the words that he knows were given to those who have seen their own wilderness-like temptation before this time. And in this, friends, Jesus models for us that it's important to store God's word in our hearts so that we have his word to pull out when we need strength in times of temptation. And so it's extremely important for us to be a people who seek to memorize scripture, And it's extremely important for us to be a people with regular habits of reading and meditating on God's word. And it's extremely important for us to be a people who read God's word together in discipling relationships with a few others who help us to live out God's word. And it's extremely important that we be a church who's committed to upholding the truth of God's word no matter what. It's extremely important that when we gather on Sunday mornings, we sing songs that are closely tied to God's word in the lyrics. It's extremely important that in between some of our songs, we pause to read smaller chunks of God's Word so that we can take in multiple passages in addition to the passage from the sermon. All of this is extremely important, Pioneer people. Because to reiterate the bad news that I've been laying out all morning, temptation is real, temptation is personal, and as long as you live on earth, that real personal temptation will find you wherever you are. I mean, we see here that it found our Savior. Satan took temptation out to him in the wilderness. But what did he do when he faced this temptation? He pulled out God's word. Let's look at how Jesus pulls out God's word. In verse 12, when he says that God shouldn't be tested, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. Because he knew that testing God was often a a sign of, of lacking faith in God. In verse 8, when he says that only God should be worshipped, he quoted Deuteronomy 6.13 because he knew that, well, only God should be worshipped. And in verse 4, when he says that man should not live on bread alone, he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 because he knew that bread without God would still leave a man wasting away. And now this is where the script kind of flips. And that bad news takes a backseat to the good news. Y'all ready for the good news? Say amen if you're ready for the good news. Listen to this. When Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, he quotes a verse that talks about manna. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, He humbled you by letting you go hungry, then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And now we all know that manna was this kind of bread-like food that God provided for his people in the wilderness. They had no source of food, and God provided them with this bread-like substance. But the Bible gets to be a little more specific. See, the Bible calls manna bread from heaven. That's bread from God. Supernatural bread. And so in a roundabout kind of way, when Jesus quotes this verse about manna, he reminds Satan that though he's hungry and in the wilderness, he's in the wilderness with supernatural help from God. He's in the wilderness with help from his father. He's in the wilderness with help from heaven, friends. And the good news this morning is that if you're one of God's people, whenever you see your own wilderness of temptation, you also have help from God the father. You have God's word to cling to. You have God's spirit that infills you and helps you to fight for holiness. That's the help we have from our God. And I skipped verse one at the beginning on purpose because I wanted to come back to it here. But that verse tells us that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and he was led by the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke puts this right after his baptism. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. Like, he just had this one-of-a-kind supernatural baptism where the Holy Spirit literally descends upon him like a dove. So him being filled with the Spirit is no surprise. We could have expected that. But the verse also says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted. And now that is a little confusing. Like, why is it that God's Spirit would lead Jesus to the place where he was tempted? Well, I think in part this shows us that sometimes God allows us to experience suffering and temptation because the suffering and temptation then gives us a platform by which we can demonstrate our devotion and and our reliance upon and our trust in God. But even more, here in Jesus' case, I think the Spirit leads him to the place that he'd be tempted because it was in God's plan for this to be yet another proof that Jesus was indeed the one who would save his people from sin and hell. We're in this section of Luke's gospel where he shows that John the Baptist was a prophet who pointed to Jesus, and he writes about Jesus being baptized, and and God the Father speaking to express his pleasure with Jesus, and he includes the genealogy which shows that that Jesus comes through the line that the Messiah was promised to come through. So you've got all of that in chapter 3 alone, plus the prophecies from the earlier chapters, and they tell of of how Jesus is is coming, and they talk about him, and there's all this praise before he's ever born. Then you get here to chapter 4, and here comes old Satan. He knows about all that's happened up to this point. He knows that Jesus has been prophesied about. He knows that God the Father explicitly called Jesus his son. But when Satan comes to Jesus and he says, if you're the son of God, do this. If you're the son of God, do that. What Satan's doing, friends, is he's kind of prodding and prying and he's testing Jesus. He wants to see if he will give this final proof that he is indeed the son of God and the savior of the world. Can he beat sin is what Satan's trying to see. He was prophesied about long before this. Angels prophesied about him shortly before this. His conception was a miraculous version of conception. His baptism was a miraculous baptism. And and, and all of that is cool and great. It's okay for people to predict your birth, and it's okay for people to, to say that miracles happen at your birth, but can you beat sin, Jesus? That's what Satan's trying to see. It's a grand question that this passage shows us is actually being asked here. Because all that other stuff, while it began the process of proving that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, here, when Satan comes to tempt Jesus, it's kind of the cherry on top. There's this ice cream mountain of proof, and this is the cherry on top where we see that though Jesus is tempted, he never gives in to sin. And that, friends, that is proof that he is the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world, and he's the one who would defeat sin and temptation. So some good news for you today... Is that while temptation is real and temptation is personal, temptation stands no chance in a battle against King Jesus. He is the victorious one. Verse thirteen tells us that after Satan had tempted Jesus in every way he had in mind, he was forced to depart, facing defeat and knowing that eternal defeat was soon to follow. So the good news, and out of all the bad news, is that temptation is temporary. Temptation is temporary. That's my final point. Temptation is temporary. In the same way that Satan was forced to leave Jesus when Jesus overcame his temptation, he'll have to do the same with you if you continue to fight against him. Two verses you can memorize about this. Genesis 4-7 says, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do what is wrong, sin is crouching at your door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. And then James 4-7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The reason we can have confidence in those two verses is because of what we know Jesus does later on. See, verse 13 says that the devil departed for a time. Well, Jesus defeats the devil here by standing against his temptations, but as Satan goes on and tries to have his way in the world, Jesus defeats him permanently through what he does on the cross. When Jesus sacrifices his life for sinners uh, to be forgiven and then he rises from the grave, he puts a permanent stamp of defeat on Satan and all of his schemes. Which means, friends, that there is a day coming when Satan's departure from us will be a permanent one, and temptation and sin and and, and this, 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 this battle that we have to fight in this life, that battle will be no more, because we'll be in heaven where temptation and sin do not exist. That's the day we have to look forward to, friends. So no matter what sin and temptation it is that you desire to be free from, you need to look to Christ for the freedom. Whether it be pride, or impatience, or lust, or discontentment, or workaholism, whatever your temptation may be, your strength will fail if you rely on yourself and fight it. But if we see, as we see from this passage, the strength of Christ will never fail because it's greater than that of temptation. So go to him for the strength to fight. Christ is the one who, who's made it possible for us to be freed from the punishment of sin now and freed from the temptation of it in the future. So go to Christ. He's beat temptation. He's defeated sin. And he gives you the opportunity to experience the same. We're going to do things a little bit differently than we typically do at the end of a sermon. Typically, we go right into the Lord's Supper at this point. But I'm going to invite Brogan and Julia to come back up. And as we think about the fact that Jesus has overcome temptation... They're going to sing one of the songs that we sang earlier. And what I want us to do is to think about some of the temptations we face. Think about the the ways that we go throughout our week. And on a daily basis, we see temptation to sin. And sometimes we even give in to sin. And if you're someone who's in the room and you say, I need prayer for that. I'm fighting against my temptation, but I'm seeing more defeat than I care to admit. There's going to be people that are right down here at the front of the stage. And as they sing, they're going to stand here. And if you desire to come and receive prayer for your own battle against temptation, then I invite you to come and pray with them. They'd be glad to pray with you. Um, And so, Brogan's going to lead us in this song. and I'm going to invite those people to come now and be prepared to pray for anybody that may come.